afternoon stuff. <laughs> I'm still, uh, still, uh, trying to get rid of the taste of orange juice. <laughs> brack, brack, 9.15 is ridiculous. Women and children, bring it up, please. Please, please. James E. Ruddy is car of Joliet, Illinois, collided with a river barge recently. He was driving uh, through warning gates at a drawbridge over the Des Plaines River when his car dropped through the gap left by the open bridge and fell 20 feet into a large barge carrying heating oil. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I just... Uh, that's, uh, you know, it's right out of a Laurel and Hardy thing. Uh, speaking of out of Laurel and Hardy, for those of you... Uh, who know Shepard's famous thesis on uh, stamps, the reciprocal relationship between uh, the uh, elegance of a stamp and the de declining nature of the country. There's, you know, there's an old story about this, that the smaller the country, the more fantastic the stamps are. I mean, you get a, a little stamp like, you know, from the island of Bunga Bunga, and the stamp is liable to be made out of pure gold leaf. With a with an embossed picture of the benefactor of Bunga Bunga, the chief, uh, in uh, in maybe even uh, possibly carved in ivory, and uh, you know so, so so our country is going that way. I'm a little worried uh, that uh, our stamps are getting more elegant as time goes on, and uh, the most elegant stamp that's come to me recently is a series of stamps saluting various hobbies. Now uh, I have right here in my collection of trivia, which I'm saving for the year. 5290. Uh, I have an elegant stamp which is done in a kind of a sepia color. It's beautiful. And it shows a magnifying glass. And uh, you look through the magnifying glass and you see that the magnifying glass is peering at what looks like about a 1905 uh, Benjamin Franklin five cent stamp. 
Uh, you know, that reminded me a little bit of that. Uh, do you remember the uh, Dutch cleanser label? Do you ever see the Dutch cleanser label where the girl or the woman is holding up a, a shiny pan and she's looking into the pan and you see her reflection holding up another pan, which you see her reflection in. If you look closely enough, you can see 20. Oh, yeah, you know what I mean. Bad news. So uh, nevertheless, here it was. It was a salute to stamp collecting. And uh, may I please have a little stars and stripes there. Mm -hmm. Hooray for the U.S. of A. Oh, ho, 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 upwards we are going. Our stamps are getting bigger, better, and more expensive. As time goes on, they're getting richer and deeper. I like this part of a Hooray for the U.S. of A. We've got the most beautiful stamps in the world. Next to the island of Tonga, Pongo, Pongo, and Upper Zambia. Hooray for the U.S. of A. Some of our stamps now weigh over a quarter of a pound. And they have gold fringe on them. And they are lovely. And it shows something that I'm not sure. Hold it there. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Well, now, I'd just like to suggest that since we are now living in a participative democracy, and, you know, very different than it used to be in the old days. I mean, any time... Anything is done for one minority group. Five thousand other minority groups say, "Well, come on, how about me?" You know, and 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 that's what democracy is about, right, man? Okay, so here we've now. I've seen stamps where we have saluted uh, stamp collecting. I saw a stamp where they saluted uh, amateur radio, and I happen to be an amateur radio operator, but I must say uh, that the stamp didn't quite catch the elusive quality of that hobby. But, you know, with all the QRM on the band and the guys yelling at each other, you know, it, uh, it was kind of nice. But I want to suggest that if this trend continues, there's going to be a lot of complaining from various hobbies that are far more popular than, say, stamp collecting or amateur radio. There's going to be a lot of complaining from those hobbies that they don't have their own stamp. Now, for example, I would like to suggest that uh, probably, I would say... On a rough estimate, uh, two and a half, maybe three and a half billion people in this world collect string. Now, I have several string collectors in my own family. My mother used to keep a large pile of string under her, uh, she had a little thin drawer under the kitchen table, with one of these white kitchen tables, and there always the string in there. And she would always say, well, you never know when you might need some string. She would stick it in there. And that was her string collection. She was very proud of it. Now, I would suggest that we're going to have to have a stamp celebrating string collectors. And I would like to suggest the leading string collector, incidentally, of the Western world is a fantastic string collector. Did you know about him? Lives in Hardin, Ohio. And he has a ball of string that weighs over 17 tons. And it's 18 feet high. And it's in the backyard of his house. There it is. And I have a picture of him standing beside his giant ball of string. Now, I think that'd make a nice stamp. You know, saluting. <laughs> you know, it's a great hobby. Now, uh, what about guys that collect pornography? 
Now, there's a lot of guys that collect pornography, and, and since pornography has become legitimate, and in many places it's called a, a leading art form, there's no reason why we shouldn't have a stamp for the porny kooks. You know, like a, hmm, uh, let's say a uh, an autographed black-and-white picture of Linda Lovelace in action, taken from one of her leading films. <laughs> films, I use that word. <laughs> Wouldn't that be kind of nice? I think that'd be a popular stamp, don't you? Yeah, you know. I can even think of an appropriate designation for the for how much the stamp should cost, and I can't bring that out here. I'll tell you, it isn't 12 cents. <laughs> kind of an expensive stamp, but, you know, it adds a little pizzazz to it. And uh, there are other hobbies which uh, I think will eventually be, and, and they'll demand, they'll demand this, and I don't blame them. They're going to demand recognition from the government. Uh, I can, for example, matchbook collectors. Now, uh, I'm, I'm a retired matchbook collector. I have three gunny sacks full of old matchbooks under the basement stairs in my mother's house where I grew and festered. And someday they're going to be worth, oh, a lot of money, maybe, who knows. I don't know what it would be worth on the match collector uh, book uh, market, maybe 15, 20 cents. But uh, nevertheless, the fact is that's a hobby that many pursue. In fact, I have a suit that's filled with old... <laughs> I mean, I never can find a match when I need one, like when I want to set fire to the boss's carpet or something. But nevertheless, uh, I think this hobby is going to require absolute uh, attention from the, from the government. And I want to call the government's attention to many hobbies, which I think eventually will have to be recognized in the stamp world. For example, I personally, my own hobby right now, is collecting... Uh, archaic, meaningless commercials, which I believe are the art form of our time. And, uh, and uh, many of you collect commercials in your brain. You don't know you're collecting it, but almost any one of you, when I say, Lady Plummer, immediately you can see the Lady Plummer standing there holding up the new comet, right? Have you noticed it's always new, no matter how long it's been on the air, it's always a new product, new comet. Uh, she, uh, she's there, and if I said to you, White Tornado, your brain has collected that commercial. You can see the white tornado coming in through the window, can't you? So, <laughs> you know, there's always three guys that, Hey, it's a white tornado! Well, uh, these are the way. Now, is collecting to be considered physical collecting or mental collecting? Now, what about guys that collect money? Now, that's the great American hobby. And, uh, yes, wouldn't that be a beautiful little stamp? You'd have a stamp, see? And, and who is the leading world's uh, uh, money collector? You could have an old woodcut of Scrooge uh, sitting there, see, in his counting house. That's what Scrooge had, a counting house. I, I always liked the idea of a counting house. I mean, you know, just sit there and count money. They didn't give any of it out. It was just counting house, you know, counting money. And there's a picture of Scrooge. Or maybe you can have, uh, who else is a great money cook? Uh, Silas Marner. Yeah, he was a goodie. How about uh, uh, Fagin? Yeah, he's kind of good. Yeah, you could have Fagin gives a little touch of elegance to it, or, or maybe Silas Marner. And there around him, you see, you could have displayed in a beautiful display all the various denominations of U.S. money. Uh, you know, starting with a dollar. You see, a dollar, a $10 bill, $5 bill, $20 bill, $50 bill, $100 bill, uh $500 bill. Oh, that's a beautiful one. You ever see a $500 bill? Beautiful. Beautiful. $1,000 bill. Oh, that's a lovely... Have you ever seen a $1,000 bill? Oh, that's... Oh, you have seen the 1000 
you travel in interesting <laughs> circles. He's seen the thousand, but not the fifty. Right. <laughs> High rollers all the way. Well, all right, thousand dollar bill. Have you ever seen the ten thousand dollar bill? Oh, brings tears to your eyes. The beauty of a ten thousand dollar bill is almost indescribable. And uh, I'll have to go further than that. You do you understand that there is a one hundred thousand dollar bill? It's a fantastic looking bill. Beautiful bill. It's got such a beautiful. I'll, I'll award a brass figure with a bronze oak leaf, totally uh, uh, full first class charter attached to it. If you can tell me whose picture is on the one hundred thousand dollar bill, Lincoln. No, 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 no. You have to be dead to be out of it. Of course, in a sense, he is. I suppose you can say that now. But uh, no, no. Who is on that ten, the hundred thousand dollar bill? Well, let's say, curiously enough, a gentleman who spent all of his life advocating thrift, which is kind of apropos, you know, I kind of like that, see? So, <laughs> hundred grand note. But uh, uh, you know that there is even a $1 million bill? Now, the $1 million bill is not often in circulation. Uh, it is true. There is a $1 million bill, and it is not in circulation very much. But uh, <laughs> I could see me going into the United Cigar Store, you know, whipping that out. <laughs> a little change here. He said, well, my God, I'd have to sell a whole block here all the way down to the penny store to get that. But uh, nevertheless, uh, there is a $1 million note, and that's a magnificent note. Now, I am proposing a stamp that has all these bills, you know, in a fan shape. I can just see it, fan shape. And it says, uh, underneath it, it says, uh, U.S. Stamp Saluting Great Hobbies. And underneath it says, uh, uh, Miserliness. Or uh, what, what would you call that hobby? You don't care. Uh, thrift, I suppose they call it. If you, if you like the guy, he's called thrifty. If you don't like the guy, he's called a, a money-grubbing fink, right? Which reminds me, this is W.O.R. in uh, New York. Thank you, Matt. That was very good. Would you please hit the American Motors spot? Please, we have an American. Your AMC dealers got the all-new mid-size car that economizes on everything but comfort. That car, the roomy 74 Matador. And another important advantage. Our 74 Matador comes with an economical six-cylinder engine as standard equipment. And consider this. Matador is the only new mid-size car backed by all the benefits of the exclusive AMC buyer protection plan. Which means that under normal usage and accepting tires, if anything AMC did goes wrong with your new 74 Matador in the first 12 months or 12,000 miles, we'll fix or replace it free. Come in today. Meet the unbeatable combination. 74 Matador backed by the AMC buyer protection plan. Yes, see your AMC dealer where you get a good deal and a good deal more. Oh, thank you. That band kind of pooped out on us there. It's easy to get cars. It's what you put in the back of them that's hard to get. All right now, but that's, uh, that, you know, six of one, half dozen the other. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's get this straight here first. Uh, there are a lot of angry people calling in and saying that I've impugned their hobby, which is uh, collectors, let's say collectors of rare and valuable erotica. I'm sorry, I, I called it porny, didn't I? 
I'm sorry. I want to apologize to all of you guys. You know, I, I'm I'm uh, on the, uh, several mailing lists inexplicably, which I do not know how I got on that. Well, I do honestly know, I suppose. Uh, yes, about every three or four months, I get a letter that is registered, of all things, from Sweden. And it comes with a register. I have to sign for it. It was just kind of embarrassing because one day, they, you know, they can trot that out in court. But I have to sign for it. And the uh, nothing is the, the envelope is plain. It just says Sweden. And I open it up, and in the inside it says, Dear Connoisseur, the new batch of fantastic films is ready. And this month we are saluting the unbelievable girls of Denmark in 8-millimeter widescreen erotic color. And it says these beauties are going to really be collector's items almost the minute they hit the market. Uh, enclosed there are some film clips for you to study and examine at your leisure. Make your selections now because these are moving fast, uh, connoisseur. Well, I sit there and I examine them. Then I pass them to Barry Farber. He's a connoisseur. And then I give them to Steve Grossman. He's another connoisseur. And uh, then I give them back to Malcolm. He's a connoisseur. Then Malcolm passes them along to, uh, to Herb. And he's a connoisseur. There's at least three Herbs who are engineers here. They read them all. And they look at the film clips. Yeah, connoisseur. One guy got picked up one day with his pocket full of connoisseur film clips down there on 49th Street. And, uh, you know, you, you, you hate to see a guy put in a slam for being a connoisseur. That, you know, uh, but nevertheless, uh, <laughs> so they, I, I want to apologize to all of you who are collectors of erotic art. Uh, and I do think your hobby should be saluted on the stamps. I really do. I, I, uh, I think this is a gross oversight. Our government could suddenly get a great reputation for being totally hip around the world. If uh, we did it, it has to be done with style. Uh, like they did it in Pompeii. And after all, there's some connections between us and Pompeii. We're not necessarily being covered with lava, but uh, we are being covered with something. I don't know what it is. It's drifting down. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of like uh, like there's a giant volcano of uh, elephant dandruff or something that's coming down out of the skies from Washington. And uh, we're slowly getting covered. But uh, I, I suppose in the end it'll all work out. It worked out for Pompeii, you know. Pompeii is making a hell of a lot more dough today than it did during its best days. I mean, tourist attraction, there must be five million people come there a week just to look at all the, all the, you know, all the rubble. And I think eventually when America finally declines, can you imagine what a great tourist attraction we will be to people all over the world now that they've got all the money? The Japs will have all the money. Japanese will have it all. The Germans and everybody... And they'll come to see the ruins of America, you know, where Rome declined. And uh, sure, I mean, that's why you go to see the Colosseum in Rome, because you get these images in your mind of, uh, you know, the lions and the guys throwing the Christians out there and uh, Nero sitting up there eating popcorn. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's in your mind. It's all in your mind. History is in your mind anyway. And uh, I, I, I see great days ahead for us. And... Uh, I'm sure that already there are some European travel agents that have tried to get the exclusive rights to the uh, to the tours of the ruin of New York and you know, Wall Street. <laughs> Take them up and down there. Can you see these buses <laughs> over there? It's a genuine computer. Number one, it used to be used, and now you see it drifting down into the mud. But uh, these are all hobbies that I, I uh, find uh, interesting, and yet uh, somehow somehow they lack the feeling of the times. Most hobbies, now for, for, 
for uh, information, for this is purely informational here, that hobbies are defined as things you do with no, uh, let's say, uh, feeling of, uh, of commerciality. You do it for relaxation. You don't expect to get anything back from your hobby. So if you're going to sail, uh, let's say, in a, uh, in a rubber raft across Lake Onawanta, and that's your hobby, going across the lake, uh, you're hardly going to charge uh, seats, you know, tickets to come people watch you do it. So that's a hobby, right? A hobby is something you do. So many people collect money with no thought of spending it. Today, money is an end in itself. Many, like guys today collect gas gasoline with no end, uh, no idea of actually using it they just keep collecting it <laughs> I mean, and uh, that's a you know that's also a sign of decadence incidentally when things are done with no uh, real reason for it so when when you were uh, lying by the uh, by the baths in Rome let's assume that you were uh, uh, you were a member of the court of uh, Nero or Caligula and you're lying there on the baths there and you're wearing your toga and uh, Nubian handmaidens are dropping grapes in your trap. Well, now, you're not eating these grapes because you're hungry. You're eating these grapes because, well, you're at an orgy. And uh, one of the things that apparently they did in these orgies in Rome was to eat a lot of grapes. Now, I don't understand the connection between grapes and orgies, but they did. And so you lie there. And so it comes under the heading of a hobby because you don't need grapes. You're not eating grapes because you're hungry. You're eating grapes because, well, you're relaxing after a hard day at the forum. And, uh, <laughs> and they're dropping the grapes. And Caligula's running up and down with a bull whip and hitting guys, you know. So, uh, yeah, hobbies are hobbies. You have to take them what they are. Now, my, my hobby, my current hobby. Well, well all right, uh, here, I'll give you a sample. I've got one of the very few hobbies that is actually boring, dynamically boring to other people. Now, uh, I have sat through, oh, one of the worst things I can think of in, in, in connection with hobbies. Have you ever had to sit through a long, interminable evening of uh, watching Kodachrome slides of some uh, horses you-know-what uh, who uh, has, uh, has euchred you into coming over there under the guise of coming over and seeing Al and Sally or something. Come on over. Cliff's coming over. And you come over there, you know, and, and he gives you a, a bottle of Michelob or something. And the next thing you know, you're all sitting in a darkened room watching these idiotic slides that go on for hours, you know. This is a picture of uh, Judy standing in front of the tree, see? Uh, now, that tree is a very interesting tree. There's a plaque at the bottom. It's a little out of focus. Now, if you could get close to the screen there, you can see that the plaque says that under this tree, uh, General Sherman uh, watered his horse. Now, we took that picture. Oh, God, you sit there and watch this stuff for hours. And so there are certain hobbies that should be stamped out uh, and will be stamped out ultimately when we arrive at a civilized civilization. And we'll tolerate that sort of thing. Now, my hobby... Uh, when the things get dull around the the old pad, you know, and a lot of people are gathered around and sitting there drinking tab and stuff. Of course, I might point out that the people that I know do not drink tab straight. Yeah, there's one guy I know that uh, that takes wild strawberry yuho. He mixes it with a uh, half a jigger of brandy and two jiggers of vodka, and it'll blow your ears right up around the wall and back again. And he loves it. He likes to think, too, it's healthy. It's, you know, it's wild strawberry diet, you who. 
so uh, <laughs> everybody has his own hobby. Now, uh, here's an example of my hobby. Would you please hit the button, Matt? This is the year of the lark. The lark is the car of the year. Yeah. Look what's new for you from the lark. It's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. It's a new convertible. Seats five adults in style. It's so pert and perky. Runs on penny per mile. The lark by Studebaker. Yours in six stunning styles for 60, including the new convertible and... Look what else is new for you. It's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. It's the new Lark Wagon with four convenient doors. Oh, yeah, and it's out for fun and frolic, but it's built for chores. Look at the Lark yourself. Learn how it's been proven by 750 million miles of owner use. All it's by one guy. Baker dealer. And see how nothing has been spared to build quality into the Lark. Discover why it's the value car of the year. The Lark is the car of the year. Uh, see, now that's a, that's a real collector's item. That's a commercial for a 1960 Lark. Yeah, it's, it's here, it's here. Yeah. For the fun people. Uh, <laughs> 750 million miles of, of user testing. And I suspect it was only two guys, two old codgers living out in Utah. But uh, <laughs> why do you think they went out of business, you know? <laughs> hey, can you imagine? I'd like to talk to the announcer on that, you know. Can you imagine this guy coming home to his wife, you know, from Darien? He says, hey, Myrtle, we made it. We're in. She says, what happened, Darwood? Well, I'll tell you, I've got the lifetime contract. I've lifetime. I'm going to represent Studebaker. And she says, Studebaker what? Studebaker? Stud yeah, the Studebaker Lark, the whole thing. She says, oh, Darwood, we can now afford everything. Okay. <laughs> but uh, there it is. That's, I think it's kind of a good commercial. I, I collect commercials, and I'd like to see a stamp saluting commercial collectors. Now, you could have it done. It has to be done with style. You can't... Everything that we do... You know, the stamp, remember, is timeless. They will be collecting stamps a thousand years from now. So it has to be done in a timeless style. How about the Preparation H-Man done in woodcut? With a classical motif, you know, done like uh, like uh, like the Greeks. He's standing there wearing uh, wearing a toga. He's he's uh, got one foot up on a on what looks like a broken column, and uh, he's holding a, a jar of preparation H. And uh, well, you know, it's just it's just it's just a thought. Uh, <laughs> I'm designing these commercials. You want to hear another one of my collector's items? All right, uh, Matt, hit the button, please. Oh, this is a goodie. <laughs> You know, that, that, to me, that commercial is always such a fantastic letdown. You just can't well, reset that in there, Matt. You just can't picture people, uh, you know, dancing on the tabletops in this this uh, this decadent waterfront dive in this Middle Eastern country, you know, wild-eyed women uh, wearing what looks like little pieces of gauze swirling around in a candlelight, and men playing strange instruments that look like gourds that are hollowed out that have goat skin coverings on them. They're playing away, and uh, somehow you just can't imagine that kind of crowd 
uh, Anthony Quinn, Zorba, drinking Pepsi-Cola. I mean, they, listen to this. You just, yeah, here's it again. I mean, just can't you imagine? What do you think these people are drinking? Some kind of rare wine made out of uh, made out of acorns or something. Strong drink. Violent women. Yeah. Men of quick temper. Vast passions. And all of a sudden they break into it. <laughs> Nothing like Pepsi Cola to wash down your retinas. Did you like that, man? I thought you would, yeah. Well, now you see that type of, uh, that type of, uh, <laughs> that type of, of, uh, of hobby just isn't going to be saluted, unfortunately. And, uh, uh, I have uh, lots of other great commercials that I have uh, selected. Incidentally, one of the greatest commercials I've ever heard uh, I have in my collection. See, I have, like everybody who has a hobby, he has the parts of his collection which he shows to the hoi polloi. You know, the, the layman. Like, I'll show you that Lark commercial because you're, you're actually a layman as far as uh, the, you know, the commercial hobby is concerned. It's, uh, it's just like a, a stamp collector. A stamp collector will have a few really choice items which he knows only other stamp collectors would appreciate. And so he doesn't just trot it out every time you know, a bunch of kids arrive. Hey, you want to see my stamps? He doesn't whip out this 1812 Mauritius. No way. He keeps that hidden back there where, you know, for the really aficionados. And, and as, a, uh, as a collector of commercials, I have, uh, I have my uh, PG commercials. That's parental guidance. Uh, I <laughs> I have my my rated G commercials, which is the lark there. Then of course I have my double X commercial, which uh, which I I really the pride of my collection. And and if you really are hip, I'll play some of these for you some night. Do you think we can get away with it, man? No, I'm serious. Now I'm, I have to point out to you that the, in certain parts of the world, certain things are advertised on the radio and television which are only hinted at here in the racier of ladies' magazines. Well, can you think of some things that you can... If you turned on the radio, you'd be astounded if you heard them advertised on the air, you know, with a, a singing choir and you know, cheerful sounding announcer coming on. Well, uh, one night, for example, I'm driving along in, uh, in Central Europe. This is uh, some time ago. And I'm driving in a car which is long since defunct. Strange little car. Uh, you know, it had a name like a Blaupunkt 8 or something, but it was a crazy little car. <laughs> I'm not serious. It was, a, it was a car. You know, uh, that during, during the, uh, the immediate uh, early 50s and up through the 60s, uh, they produced some really exotic cars in Europe. Uh, how many of you have ever seen the Messerschmitt? You ever see a Messerschmitt car? You never did. Well, now that car was very popular, and in fact, there was a distributor in Jersey over here for the Messerschmitt. Uh, he gets together with his friend once in a while, who was a distributor for the Edsel. And uh, they, they sit down there, and they talk about the old days, see, when hopes were so bright, <laughs> and when, when the future was unlimited. But uh, the, the Messerschmitt car was a very interesting car. And I will briefly try to describe it for you, if I can. Have you ever seen the pictures of a Messerschmitt 109? You know what that was. That was a fighter airplane, okay? 
Well, if you took that, now that was a one-seater, right? It was a single-seater fighter airplane, and it had a bubble canopy over it. Well, now, if you were to come up to a, a Messerschmitt with a hacksaw, and you were seriously to just saw it off right in the front there, right where the right in front of the bubble, you know, just whack the motor and the wings right off, like that. And then you were to go behind the bubble and just go whack it off behind that, and then you were to stick two wheels under that in the front and two little itty-bitty wheels in the back. That was a Messerschmitt. The Messerschmitt was like a little airplane fuselage, seriously, and it had seats for two. It had, it, And the, the two seats were not tandem, but they were in line. One of the very rare cars ever built where the passenger, uh, the only passenger in the car, sat behind the guy that was driving. Now, what kind of a steering wheel did they have? That was really interesting. Now, I'm not, I'm not inventing this. I'm telling you, actually, there was a car called a Messerschmitt, and the uh, the steering wheel of the Messerschmitt car was a yoke, uh, just exactly like the the kind of yoke you see in the small aircraft today. It's a little a, a little yoke, and uh, well, actually, if you want to be really corny, so was the car, but uh, <laughs> well, you don't get it. Yoke, yoke, uh, okay. Uh, so <laughs> this. The, <laughs> I'm sorry, man, but this had a bubble. The whole thing was a bubble, see, and you, you slid the canopy back. It was a fantastic little, uh, you could do this real style. You slid the canopy back, and you stepped down into the car, squatted down, sat down. It had a little seat uh, just exactly like a, the kind that they have in a fighter plane. had a little uh, uh, instrument panel, and the, the dials on the panel even looked like aircraft dials, and the thing went like a bat out of hell. That was called a Messerschmitt had a little two-cycle engine in it. And uh, back there in the, in the uh, space between the two wheels behind there, this thing had this little engine. It was like a, like a Vespa engine. And she'd go roaring down the road. And those are great collector's items now. If you can come across a Messerschmitt, that's quite a car. Did you ever hear of the Go-Go? All right, well, that was another one. The, the, the Go-Go mobile was... Uh, well, how about even this one? How about the... Uh, uh, what the heck did they call this one? Uh, the uh, Isada? No, wasn't it Isada? It was the Isetta. Isetta. You're right. The Isetta. Now the Isetta was an almost totally globular car. It was round, and uh, when you opened the door, it, you came in the front. Yeah, you walked in the front of this baby. Uh, the engine was in the rear. Actually, it was under the seat when you sat over this thing. It was under the seat, and and. Uh, and when you wanted to get in the car, you just opened the thing, and it had a great big window in the front, big curved glass window, and you just opened it. The whole front just swung open like that, and you would swing around then, you'd swing around, and you'd squat down in this thing. And the chick would sit next to you, whoever it is, and then you would grab a bar and pull the door shut, and boom, it would lock. And that was the Isetta, a stylish little machine. There is a movie, by the way, uh... Starring Gene Kelly, a famous uh, musical movie. You'll see it occasionally on TV. And it's a great classic musical. One of, one of the ones they always talk about as being a great musical. And Gene Kelly drives up in front of this elegant hotel or restaurant. It's a night scene in a white Isetta. <laughs> I wonder how many people... You know, this, was a, this was quite a car. And the Isetta, of course, the only problem with the Isetta was occasionally at the... It, uh, since it was very light, if you ran into a crosswind of more than, oh, maybe two or three miles an hour, you'd find yourself airborne like a balloon. And uh, occasionally, a lot of other things would happen with it, like the door would swing open, and there you are, you know, you're sitting out in the front. 
But uh, I, I might tell you this, that I was one time busted in New York City in an Isetta. I, yep, I was busted right down there at Washington Square. Do you recall the, the big mill we had with the three-inch kites? Well, Shepard arrived down there that day in an Isetta, blood-red Isetta. And the next thing I knew, the cops are descending on me like locusts. And I, there's a famous picture of Shepard being led into the wagon <laughs> and his Isetta being towed in by the cops. And I was being uh, booked for uh, inciting a, a public demonstration and a riot without permission. Now, I don't know where you go to get permission to incite a riot, but uh, that's, what <laughs> that's what I was booked for. Do you remember those days, man? You know? Yeah, well, okay. So, so I, have a, I have a thing about the Isetta. Now, now uh, that reminds me, you know, speaking of uh, guys that went out and bought those cars, Went out and, and, and in, in spite of all the the uh, public opinion against it, that must have been in your neighborhood. Went out and actually bought an Isetta, as opposed to say uh, you know a more conventional car, Pontiac, Chevy, Buick. He goes out and buys an Isetta. This is a special type of guy. A guy that will go out and buy a uh, a Heinkel. Did you know that the, that they had a Heinkel, which was incidentally the the companion airship, uh, the Heinkel fighter plane. Which uh, the H the one uh, oh there were several uh, several Heinkel fighters but Heinkel built a plane at the same time that Messerschmitt did and if you're curious what the story is uh, at the end of uh, the war World War II they had these great aircraft plants all sitting around in Germany and you know, they didn't have much business especially turning out the kind of airplanes they were turning out but they had a lot of pieces of aluminum and stuff and plastic and stuff. So uh, they, they built these, these cars, which were really kind of like strange little subverted fighter planes. They didn't have any bomber types that I know of. It can be great, you know, getting a JU-52 car. That <laughs> I mean, seats four. See, that's four, four motors there. But uh, it takes a special kind of guy. And tonight, uh, would you give me a little of that low-down jazz type? Uh, before you do that, Matt, please, let's do the pajama game spot, please. I'm Richard Adler, co-producer, co-composer lyricist of The Pajama Game. Broadway's big new smash hit musical now playing at the Lundfontan Theater on 46th Street west of Broadway. The critics rave. Clive Bonds of the New York Times says, The audience absolutely adored it. This I loved before and still love. Richard Watts of the New York Post proclaims, The Pajama Game is brilliant, a Broadway triumph. Doug Watt of the New York Daily News says, A rousing show. Every number is a dandy. The Pajama Game, starring Barbara McNair, Cab Calloway, and Hal Linden, singing and dancing songs like Steam Heat, Hey There, and Hernando's Hideaway. It's fun and laughter time now at the Lundfontan Theater on 46th Street west of Broadway. Matinees Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. Bravo, The Pajama Game. Yeah, bravo, bravo. Have you noticed that Broadway seems to be nothing but a rerun of 500 seasons back, you know? They're gonna, I, I'm, I'm waiting to see uh, Myrna Loy appearing in East Lynn. And, uh, you know... <laughs> oh, sure, it's got to come, you know. Uh, but the pajama game, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, give you a brass figure with a real bronze oak leaf palm. If you can tell me what novel that was based on. You know, we are living in very, very illiterate times. Most people have no idea of uh, 
of a, you know novel to to them uh, a, a a movie is the end in itself. Well, what what uh, what novel is this based on? Very funny novel, by the way. And another piece of trivia: who wrote it? Who wrote the novel? Okay, hold it up there. Yes, that's right. The second one is one of the the, the guy that wrote the uh, the book for this or the novel really for uh, Pajama Game is a one of the I think one of the few truly funny writers in America. There are not many. I'm not a Woody Allen fan, uh, not necessarily, and I and I I seriously think he's one of the true funny writers in America. But he hasn't written for a long time. Who who uh, who is he and what did he write? He wrote a fantastic book, by the way, not a fantastic, but a really good book about life on a barge. Contemporary life, not Mark Twain life. Life on a river barge in the well in the Mississippi and in. Uh, St. Louis. Have you ever been on a barge? One of these barges that you see going up and down the river? Well, well, uh, he wrote a great book on it. The same guy that wrote Pajama Game. <laughs> All right. Uh, by the way, that drives guys right up the wall. Uh, guys that have written novels. And when the novel is written, it winds up being done as a movie with, uh, with Redford Newman. And uh, nobody even, yeah, you know what I mean. Nobody gives him any credit at all for creating this whole thing, and and it it winds up some most people I suspect when they go to see a movie they really believe that that Paul Newman created all this. You know, he, he it was Newman, uh, either that or it was uh, Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols somehow wrote Catch Twenty Two or something. He, <laughs> you know, he, he what he did was 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 badly decimated, but uh, nevertheless uh, the. The uh, writer of a novel, he really is known to people, and uh, he he quite often is lost in the hurry, you know, the rush. But uh, this guy, all right, I'll I'll tell you who it was. No, I I shouldn't. We'll leave that for your for your homework. But uh, you know, speaking of people who uh, who buy cars, uh, that or things, an absolute defiance of everybody around them, is I know a guy who bought a television set, one of the ugliest TV sets ever made. And he bought it during the days when uh, everybody else was buying conventional sets. Do you remember a television set that uh, that was the the tube was out naked? The actual tube revolved. You could turn it to different parts of the room. It was a big tube, like a a 25 inch tube, and the tube, the picture tube, was mounted on a base that had all the uh, had all the guts of the set in it. You know, the channels and all that. But the tube was a great big tube, and it had a had a cover on the back. And it looked like a gigantic headlight that you could turn it around in various parts of the room. Do you remember that set? Oh, it was advertised as a big deal. They sold about five of them. And my friend bought one. <laughs> he was one of the five. Oh, it was an ugly set. And and uh, and at first, of course, uh, his 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 set his set was laughed at by people, and uh, he was he was he was put down. Uh, there's something about when you buy something that's a total lemon, you tend either to do one of two things. You either push it in the river and get mad and write a letter to, to, to Nader, or you become defensive and stick with it. It's the two things. See? Oh, yeah. There's many a guy that still swears. By God, I'll tell you this. You can laugh all you want, but my Studebaker lark is the finest. And he'll stick with that piece of tin. Well, my friend stuck with his television set. Now, that TV set was big in the John Cameron Swayze era. 
and Douglas Edwards in the news came on every night, and Faye Emerson had her own show. Well, he stuck with that set. People laughed at it, but went with no known decor, unless you were running a uh, steam winch somewhere. It looked a little bit like it would go very well with the, with the control room of uh, a major ocean liner. Terrible looking set. Well, his set became a collector's item. And recently, he turned down an offer for $4,000 for his set. He's sitting there proudly beside it now. So you stick with it, friends. By God, you stick with those knickers. They're coming back. You stick with them. And uh, you, you, just, you just don't let anybody talk you out of it. You hang in there. And if you bring up the theme, we will recommend that you stay tuned for the next opus that follows in just a few moments. And think clean thoughts all the way down the line, you uh, erotic art collectors. One day your hobby is going to be right up there with all the rest of them. Stamp collecting, uh, string saving, money grubbing, all the great hobbies of our time. Yes. By George. <laughs> I just thought of a terrible joke about George. Oh, this is W.O.R., RKO General in New York. Next, John Wingate. 